Hello, friends. We are back with episode 126 of the Our Weekly Hollies podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and if you are new to our little show here, this is the place where we talk about all the latest happenings and resources on the always helpful Our Weekly org site for your weekly R content to learn from and enjoy. My name is Eric, and I am joined by my awesome co-host, as always, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Eric. We have a fun set of highlights this week I'm looking forward to. Oh, yeah. We got a wide selection here, and you know, we, we, we never have shortage of things to say. We got our opinions, but we also have our appreciation for everything we're about to talk about today, as this has been curated by Tony Elharbar, another now becoming a longtime member of the R Weekly team. He's been very helpful to us, and he had great help with this issue from our fellow R Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world with your poll requests and other recommendations to R Weekly itself. So let's dive right into it. And I admit, I love things like our first highlight here because throughout your coding adventures in R, whether you're building a package or building an app or you're building or you're consulting with a teammate that has a problem and you're trying to solve it. Oftentimes through your searching and through your maybe previous code, you, you find these nuggets that you want to make a note of because you definitely want to use them again in the future. And if you're like our first uh, highlight author here, you love to share it with the world. And that is exactly what Maal Salman, who is um, a former R Weekly team member and research software engineer with R OpenSci, and she is sharing with us in our first highlight three very useful R patterns that she has discovered and she is now using in her daily work. So we'll go through each of these one by one, and each of these I resonate with in many different ways. I'm sure you do as well, Mike. And the first one here is dealing with the list object, which is a very important object across so many spectrums of your R development. And the situation here is that typically for a list, you'll have a set of values to start with. We might call them the default values. But then in the life cycle of a function or, or an analytical pipeline, you do want to update maybe some of those or all of them, but having the capability to easily update a selection of them without having to really duplicate the list over again. And so this first useful function is coming from the utils package called modify list. Now, first, I just want to say, this utils package is a gold mine of very handy little nuggets to help your R adventures. And utils is not a package you have to install from the community. It's in your base R installation. So it's right there for the taking. But there are a lot of these little, I'll call hidden gems that can really make your life easier. So how does modify list work here? So if you have your, your list that you've already created, but then you want to just update one section of it. All you have to do is make a, use a call to modify list, feeding in your first argument, that default list that you have, if you will, the, the first list. And then the second argument can be another list with just the stuff you want to change. And so that way it is going to override the object you assigned to with both the default values that you didn't change and the modified values in place all in one call. This is fantastic. 
And Mike, you were looking comments in our little prep here. You think this is a very handy object or pipeline for shiny users as well, right? You knew that I was going to bring Shiny into this somehow, but absolutely, you know, I, I know we always make it somehow about about Shiny. But if you are a Shiny developer, in my opinion, you know, sooner or later, you're going to find lists as a really useful tool in your workflow. You know, whether that be a reactive values list or a list of name value pairs for a select input widget so that what shows up on screen is one thing and what actually gets collected to pass to the server is a separate thing. And, and modifying lists is a little different than modifying data frames. As you know, Eric, you can't really modify lists well with the dplyr package. Um, and per and the apply family of functions give us some tools for typically iterating over lists. But again, that can be different from actually modifying the elements of that list. So usually you have to figure out how many square brackets are necessary to refer to the specific element that you're looking for in the list and then try to modify it uh, using an assignment operator. And what Mel points out here is something that I had not realized before that we have this phenomenal function called modify list from from the utils package which is baked right into your base R installation um, that can save you a line or two of code at least and in my opinion I think it's probably safer than uh, you know potentially using the wrong number of square brackets in your modification statement um, it's it's really straightforward. In her example, it looks like she's just overwriting the elements of a list uh, that exist in overwriting in the elements of a list uh, that she has in the second list that exist in the first list. I guess my question, which I haven't toyed around with yet, I do have an RStudio uh, instance open, which I'm going to try it here very, very quickly. But I'm wondering if if there isn't a match between the two lists, if it'll actually append um, any new elements found in that second argument to the initial list. Any ideas? Now, I, I'm going to guess it does append it. Folks, you don't see it on screen. Mike is frantically live coding this, um, which I cannot see what he's actually doing. But we're going to find out the answer very shortly here. It has an argument called keep null, and it, which is by default set to false. So maybe that's, that's uh, a potential clue here. But... I will uh, I will work on it during our next highlight and, and uh, <laughs> circle back here. Awesome, awesome. Well, and that wasn't the only tip that Miles shared. We got a couple other very useful ones as well. Another thing I encounter a lot is I will have to check whether I'm doing a, a package itself or a shiny app if an object is actually null or not. And then oftentimes I want to do something different to a, a, a conditional logic in my code if that object is null, perhaps giving it a default value that maybe I didn't specify in a parameter argument. Now, typically what you might do, and my code is littered with this, is you'll have an if statement and you're checking if that particular object is null with the is.null function. But in this tip here, our lang comes with a built-in operator I, I always have a time saying this verbally, but operators are usually surrounded by the percent signs and then it's two vertical pipes, if you will. This is often used when you say is something or something else. So this operator can check simultaneously first if that object is null and second on the right hand side of the operator, you can put in the default value. So again, you've just saved yourself a few keystrokes 
And honestly, it once you grok that, yeah, that vertical pipe is meaning or something, it just kind of logically makes sense as you read through it. So I can see many opportunities to clean up my code for all these if statements that are running around like crazy. And I literally just was building an update to a package with a whole boatload of if statements for null objects. So I will be checking that one out for sure. And then the last tip, this will take you back to maybe your algebra days um, in, in school. But when you want to see, have a comparison of two vectors of stuff, maybe text, numbers, or a mix of whatever, and you want to see what's common in them or what is different about them, you could use some you know, vector-based operator indexing with calls to unique of an object, but then having another condition inside it that's kind of trying to articulate what you're trying to accomplish to find something different, there's an easier way. R comes with these handy functions such as set diff, where if you have two vectors, it's going to quickly tell you what is the element or set of elements that are different between them, just like the function says. And then conversely, if you want to see what is common amongst the vectors, it's union. So again, going back to maybe some math training you've had in the in your in your growing up days with math classes, this is very analogous to set theory. Union, intersections, and the like. And R comes with a boatload of these, but the documentation for these functions, such as set diff, will get you up and running really quickly. And I use this a whole bunch of times when I need to see as I'm assembling maybe two data frames together or two lists together, what is common between them and maybe changing some things along the way if for the things that are common versus the things that are different. So again, really helpful functions, and I'm really thankful for Mel for documenting this together. And there's even some nice comments in the blog post back to that Arlang operator about different how you might want to include that in your own package. So I definitely invite you to check out the full post and the discussion afterwards um, for some great tips on that. But again, credit to Mel for sharing some of her quick wins for us so we can talk about here today. No, that's great. And set diff is a function that I use all the time. Um, so I, I appreciate Mel pointing that one out. And I did not use that. I've never used that is null operand, uh, which again, like you said, could save me a ton of time because I have so many if is null calls in a lot of my uh, R code, shiny apps and non-shiny apps included. So that would skinny things down quite a bit. And I do have a final follow-up on the modify list function. Drum roll, please. Here we go. The answer, <laughs> the answer is yes. If uh, there are differing elements, they will append them together, sort of like the union function, essentially. And where there are matches, it will overwrite. Really, nicely really cool. done, Mike. Nicely done on the spot. I need to get you on a live stream sometime. Maybe you can help <laughs> my debugging adventures. We may touch on a little bit here. But uh, awesome. Well, we we all learned something new. And, and like I said, Mal does a terrific job sharing that with the rest of us. So I will be putting these tips in practice when I get back to my desk right after this call because I got a lot of updating to do here. Speaking of updating, I have been anticipating the stuff we're going to talk about in this next highlight for a little bit of a long time now because I've had hints it was coming and now it's finally here. 
to frame it, I'm going to share a little bit inside the, the dev life of Eric here about what are, where I want to employ what we're about to learn here. So I've been updating a very important production shiny app at the day job, and I'm fortunate to have a very talented UI UX designer to help me out with, you know, some ideas for a different user experience in my app to make it a little more streamlined. And this new feature is wrapping um, my Viz Network adventures to help the users create a little network, kind of choose your own adventure thing interactively in, in the app. And the UX designer had some great recommendations on how we can put some nice options in a sidebar and really take advantage of modern components like tab layouts, but then collapsing and hiding elements and being able to activate certain things depending on where they click. And I'm looking at the whiteboarding that, that, he, that they offered me. And because of what I'm about to talk about here, I immediately thought to myself, I can now do this in native Shiny with the help of BSLib. And that is because in our second highlight here, we are very eager to share with you that Carson Seifert's latest blog on the Shiny blog itself. Carson, of course, is a software engineer on the Shiny team at Posit about the recent updates of BSLib to create customizable dashboard elements. Now, if you've been around Shiny for a long time, you likely have used packages like Shiny Dashboard in the past to create your dashboards. And again, that was hugely helpful in the early days, especially as we were trying to build these more business intelligence-like frameworks to apps. I'll be try to be polite here. Shiny Dashboard's a bit long in the tooth a little bit. It's depending on a framework called Admin LTE, which is, again, a little bit dated here and there. And it's always been like my wish to like have some of those features without opting into Shiny Dashboard all the time. Well, BSLib is here to help because now we have functions to help create native sidebars on the left that can be responsive and have any number of elements inside that again can be optimally laid out without much friction or much uh, cognitive load for you because a lot of these elements are going to be what's called fillable out of the box that they will use the width that is available to it without you having to jump through a lot of additional logic to make it responsive or to make it stretch out so there are lots of interesting elements here that you can put in this sidebar you can also put in what are called accordions. Ironically, a podcast, I feel like I should play an accordion right now, but no, I don't have one handy. But accordions in this context mean that you can have a little like carrot arrow where you can have the user click and hide any number of elements in that container if you don't want them to see it right away. I use this all the time in the old shiny dashboard to hide certain elements of the menu that I didn't want them to see right away, but they could opt into it. Now with BSLib, we can have that in our sidebars as well. But then you can combine this with the additional tooling that they are exposing here for column-based layout that is going to be a lot easier to use, in my humble opinion, than the rather infamous technique I've been doing all the time, fluid row. 
and then column with equal four with equal eight you know the 12 base column layout you're going to get an easier way to opt into the grid system of column layouts with the recent updates to bs lib with the layout columns function so i definitely invite you to check that out and also the elements that we have been hearing about in bs lib called the cards which again is another element that we often saw in shiny dashboard now you have the ability to put sidebars in the card as well if you want to put some elements there a trick i've used extensively with packages like bs4 dash and the like now we get that in bslib as well that can be really convenient for your users to have that one or two set of controls that are just tailored to that visualization or that table in that particular card what i love about this post as well on top of obviously the great new functions is that Carson has included little screen, you know, demonstrations of these elements in action with links underneath to try it on Posit Cloud right away. So you can literally get down and dirty and experiment with this in an interactive environment if you want to test things out yourself or try out some new capabilities. But the big picture here is that BS Lib is becoming to me that that supercharged plugin to native Shiny, where the Posit team doesn't have to update all of Shiny itself to take advantage of these features. A BS Lib is going to expose to you not just the theming capability, but now these up-to-date widgets, these up-to-date UI elements to give you that control, whether it's a more simplistic control or getting down to the weeds you get you you can have your cake and eat it too on that as well with custom theming custom elements custom css but there's so many things out of the box that are going to make your development of shiny apps from a ux standpoint i think a lot more fun so i've been waiting for this for a while and i can tell you that there is at least one or two uh, production apps at work that I am pivoting to this new BS Lib because it is going to make my development a lot easier. And the dashboard features, they've been anticipated for a while for me personally. And I think the rest of the community is going to be really excited about this too. So yes, I am excited. I fully admit it. So Mike, what are you, what are you thinking about these new updates here? No, I appreciate Car- uh, Carson taking the time to, to spell out these updates for us in a blog post, which is fraught with uh, videos as well as images of exactly how this new functionality works. Hot take here, Eric. I'm going to say it. You tried to softly say it. I'll, I'll be your translator. You know, Here lies Shiny Dashboard, uh, RIP. Um, it was a phenomenal package for so many years. But BS Lib and BS for Dash have just taken it to the next level let's we're standing on the shoulders of shiny dashboard if i can put it that way and and i absolutely love these updates you know one of my favorites here is the card level sidebars uh, which allows you to you know for example add a slider in the sidebar of a card um, that enables users to change the data in just that card which is really really cool um, you know, one of my least favorite updates, hang in with me here, uh, is the ability to create accordions. And let me explain. So I was developing. <laughs> okay, was de- we got controversy here. I love it. Yes. <laughs> I was, de- and this is going to be quite ironic, but I was developing a shiny app that, that we've actually had uh, in production for, for over a year or two now, I think. And um, 
it was just a great use case for an accordion because it's this giant map and we want to have um, the user, we want to expose widgets for the user to be able to change the data in this full screen map on the page, but we don't want those widgets to take up a lot of space on the page. So it would be nice if there was a way to collapse them. Well, we know Bootstrap 5 has this element, this HTML uh, div called an accordion that, you know, is a container around whatever HTML elements you want to include inside that container. And there's a little carrot in the top right of that container that you can toggle back and forth and expand and collapse the content inside that container, right? So I uh, ended up hand spinning this accordion uh, just by taking a look at the HTML on the bootstrap page and translating it into shiny code. Well, as soon as I finished uh, essentially hand spinning this code for an accordion i took a look at the bs lib page and it was in development at that time and we needed it to be on crayon for this this client we couldn't uh reach out to you know at build time we couldn't reach out to github and use the github uh, development version of the package so now it is on crayon all of that hand spun code is is you know it's still working probably the same way that it would work uh, in BSLib, but it would be nice to reduce the amount of, of code that we do have in the app by just leveraging BSLib's accordion package. So long story short, I love this feature. Uh, the, the accordion is, is absolutely an awesome way to minimize content that doesn't always need to be on screen and just improve your UX. So that's just me joking about uh, hating this feature, but loving it at, at the same time. So it's really nice to see these improvements as the bootstrap ecosystem, HTML eco ecosystem uh, improves, right? And we continue to get nicer UIs and UXs on our web pages that we visit. It's nice to see Shiny sort of following along in those footsteps as well. Yep, I've I know I've been there. I I've coded something up and I'm realized, oh, it's so close to being in the standard CRAN release, but it's not quite there yet. So I have been in my first half of this year, I have been holding off on major UX updates until this has been coming through. But now I've got a project that's about to start that we'll definitely be using, and I have a legacy project that I'm going to slowly wean it off of its current uh, shiny dashboard dependencies and and put it here. So, yes, I I I admit I try to be maybe a little too diplomatic on it, but yes, shiny dashboard. I'd imagine if you ask me today, I'm probably not going to recommend it because now BSWIP's got you covered, and you you sometimes you have to kind of skate where the the current trend is, and I think. For those situations, especially where you've been concerned about the footprint of your app dependencies, which can happen, there may be cases where you want to have as least amount of dependencies as possible from the shiny specific portions of it. It's nice to know that with BSLib kind of taking on more scope here, that that combination of shiny and BSLib is going to get you really far. Now, again, the, you're talking to somebody that has put Shiny Dashboard Plus, BS4 Dash, and countless other UI toolkit packages in production. And I'd say, if you love them, keep using them, please. Yeah, this is not an indictment or anything on them. It's just nice to know that for other situations where I want to stick with native Shiny, I can have some of those nice things that I've been clamoring for for a long time. Now I can bring it in to my native app. So I am super excited to 
put this in action, which I was trying to get to a state to put this in action uh, sooner than later in my uh, live stream last week for the R Medicine Conference, but I didn't quite get there yet. So stay tuned for a future live stream where I actually do put this in action in real time so you all can join me on that journey. Yes, and, and that's a great point, Eric. And, and uh, one last thing on this topic. If uh, you, like me, see something on the Bootstrap website that you want to incorporate into your Shiny app uh, that does not yet exist in a package, or you want to just be ahead of the BSLib package just so that they can render uh, your code obsolete shortly thereafter, <laughs> I did give a talk at ShinyConf two ShinyConfs ago on how to essentially translate any bootstrap element uh, into shiny code to put in your app. So we can put a link in the show notes there. Yes, I am making it know that as we speak, we will have that link and there's yeah, a bunch of great talks on this, um, that of this great topic. And I have been doing custom CSS tricks in this uh, new app I'm making for the day job. And it was a great learning experience. But yeah, you're going to be able to, you know, strat be able to straddle both sides of this using BS Libs native functions or going, you know, really under the hood. Um, it's exciting times to be a, a shiny developer and supercharging your UX experience here. Well, Mike, no, our week of highlights would be complete without at least some visit to a visualization corner, if you will. And we got another interesting extension of the very famous and very favorite of ours, a ggplot2 package for our last highlight today. And this comes from Abdul Bidda, who is a full stack engineer, who is also blogging a lot about data science, uh, tips and tricks that he's learning along the way. And he's had a recent motivation to kind of go away from the standard visualization of categorical data and quantities of bar charts, if you will. And he was looking at ways to incorporate more effectively circle-based visualizations. Now, what are some of those you might ask? Well, one you probably know very well, pie charts, also known as sector charts, and more recently to me, donut charts. But finding a way to do this in native ggplot2 and now Abdul has created a new package exposing a lot of these um, functionality called ggtricks. And we'll go through some of these resources or functions in this package right now. The first, he was inspired by a, I'll say a very vintage uh, journal article that used a combination of circles to illustrate proportions of a unit and then the number of circles. This was um, an example where I looked at the retail prices of different um, products at a supermarket. And this visualization was made in the early 1900s. You definitely check out the post for the screen capture of it. Pretty, pretty interesting. And what's interesting is that to illustrate the different increments of units, each unit is represented by a circle. But then for that last unit, if it's only a fraction of that, it's a fraction of the circle. And when I look at this chart, I get serious vibes of Pac-Man because you, 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 you'll see when you see the post. But the first uh, example here is Abdul illustrates a way to create this in ggplot2 using some geomes called geome series circles. 
where now he has replicated this journal article to show this in native ggplot2. It looks practically exactly the same. But you can customize it like anything in ggplot2. You can cover these circles by a quantity. You could also put in additional annotations of text around the quantities as well. So you can see specifically the number of units that these circles represent in total for each row. And again, this might be a very interesting way to visualize kind of this hybrid of uh, proportions and number of units at the same time. Up next, he talks about the geome pi geome function, which you guessed it, is making a pie chart in ggplot2. This sometimes has a um, unique uh, perspective by many people. Some are not big fans of pie charts, but if you like them, ggtrix definitely has you covered by giving a very native-looking gg-powered pie chart very quickly with the geome pie geome, but also you can annotate them as well. Maybe one of those slices you want to put a textual label. You can use annotate as well inside these labels as well. You can also facet additional information such as where does the angle start, so to speak, on the plot. That's for the init angle as well as some other customizations as well. And then the other ones that are included here are Geome Donut, which again gives you that donut chart, which looks a lot like a pie chart, but it's obviously got the circle exposed. So that can be helpful for a lot of people. And you can even change the size of that inner circle if you like, if you want it to be really big or really small, that can be helpful depending on your situation. And then you can also take components of this donut via what's called Geome Donut Slice if you just want to show a specific region of it as well. And Abdul concludes the post with a couple limitations based on coordinates that for zooming the plot. So you might have to watch your, your way of implementing that um, for your work. But he is going to be updating this with some future improvements as well to help with additional customizations to the mapping and the various elements inside these circle-based visualizations. So certainly if you've been itching your way to have a more customizable ggpod2 experience for circle-based visuals such as pie charts, donut charts, um, definitely give Abdul's GG Tricks package a spin and the blog post will definitely get you started right away with this interesting capability. So Mike, what did you think about these GG Tricks in the package? No, this is a nice package to see come out, and I appreciate Abdul's blog post sort of walking us through the package, you know, from start to finish. And it is on CRAN, so you can just run and install that packages called GG Tricks um, and get it right there. I know that it is possible to create a pie chart in ggplot2. I think with the geom bar and chord polar functions. Um, although I, I don't think it's as smooth as what Abdul is providing here. There's also, uh, just to note, I believe there is a ggpy package as well, but I think there's some, some significant differences between what that package does and sort of all the different things uh, that you can do with GG tricks here. And, and like you said, the way that he's able to sort of slice um, some of these donut charts and, and pie charts is, is pretty interesting. And I think there's some pretty unique use cases for it. Uh, I think there's a, a sort of whole other set of things that you have to think about with circular shaped charts, right? And, and the coordinate system that goes along with that. 
I personally am not a big fan of pie charts, um, but I will throw a hot take out there and say that I kind of like donut charts. I think that uh, you're able to grok a little more easily than pie charts, um, sort of what proportion of the data lies in each section of the circle chart um, as compared to sort of being able to, to grok uh, the proportionality uh, that exists in, in pie charts themselves. So this is definitely one that I'm going to play around with the next time that I need to create some sort of circular uh, type of visualization. It's really nice to see the analogies that he's provided in terms of functionality in this package, um, analogies to functions that exist in ggplot2 for uh, theming and filling and aesthetics uh, and things like that. Um, so really nice package. I think it'll it'll look very familiar to ggplot2 users in terms of the, the syntax and uh, definitely check it out if you are in need of some circular visualizations. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It, it, it took a while to grow on me a bit, but yeah, donut charts have been pretty effective for a couple of my uh, visualization adventures and recent years. And I think, yeah, using it in the right context, I think it's a very handy feature. But yeah, I'm really excited to see, again, with ggplot2, there's just this amazing ecosystem of extension packages. And it's great to see ggtricks bring another very much hands-on customizable capability to what we're seeing a lot in the in these um, situations, especially when I look at some of these business intelligence like dashboards, you'll see donut charts a lot of times and being able to pick and choose the different pieces you want, I think are, are really helpful here. So I'll be keeping an eye on this for my next uh, visualization adventures. But yeah, Abdul has a terrific write up here. So of course, we can only do so much justice to an audio based podcast of a visualization blog. So definitely check that out after this, uh, after you listen to this episode, if you want to see what all the circle stuff's all about here. But let's circle back, if you will, to the rest of this issue, right? We got a lot of great selection of highlights here, and but we got a lot more in the issue to talk about. If we had infinite time, we would, but you know, we're going to wrap up with a couple additional finds here that we saw in the issue. And for me, of course, I'm going to spin shining back in it because why not? But I want to put the call out to this excellent blog post from the Think R team, of course, think our we're featured recently with our discussion of the Fuzin package, as well as obviously Golem and the like. But they have a great little blog post on more effective ways you can handle file downloads in your Shiny app. Whereas their motivation is in the typical documentation of the functions called download handler, it's pretty, you'd say, sparse and very utilitarian. But you can often find yourself in a little bit of crazy situation when the download does not work as expected and debugging that can be a bit of a pain. So I really like the pattern that they outline in this post where you kind of use reactive values to help put in placeholders for the object you want to put into that download, but also the file itself created in a temporary way. And then when the user actually downloads a file, you're simply kind of copying that from the temporary area to the download handler. It's a very interesting trick. And I've done similar adventures of this in the past where I have a button that will, to the user, look like a download handler, but it's actually doing some checks of the object and other parameters to make sure they or I didn't screw anything up 
along the way before the download is actually ready to go. And then I will invisibly call a download handler after the fact to actually do the processing. But I think the the tricks here from the Think R blog post here, I think are a very elegant way to kind of do that processing up front, but an easier way to debug that before you actually get to the download part itself. So very niche topic. But again, if you're doing downloads a lot on your shiny apps, I think there's a lot of cool little tricks here you can learn from. So Mike, what did you find in this issue? That's a great find, Eric. Uh, what I found in the highlights for my additional find is the Tidyverse team's code review best practices guide, uh, which looks like it's a beautiful Cordo book. And um, it contains some fantastic resources and a lot of in-depth uh, conversation and thought about how to go about reviewing, uh, how to go about code review as a reviewer and how to go about code review as the author of the code as well. And, and I guess I'll just highlight maybe one section uh, in the reviewing portion of the book that I thought was was pretty cool and pretty unique and something that I hadn't necessarily seen articulated before. Uh, but in, in section two under, under reviewing, there's a section called compliments. And uh, the Tidyverse team says that if you see something nice in a PR, uh, tell the author, especially when they addressed one of your comments in a great way. Uh, code reviews often just focus on mistakes, but they should also offer encouragement and appreciation for good practices as well. And I couldn't agree with that more. So this is a, a phenomenal resource. I think code review is something that does not get talked about enough, uh, does not get sort of written down enough. It might be something that everybody sort of has, everybody on your team sort of has their own idea or definition of what code review is in your organization. And I, for one, at least believe that it's really important to have that articulated, have that documented so that everyone's on the same page and that especially in terms of reviewing the, the software that your organization is putting into production, uh, having best practices around that I think is really important. Yeah, I can't wait to recommend this to uh, colleagues I have at my current organization or even elsewhere in the community, because a lot of us weren't formally trained with this. This is a new workflow for many of us, especially if we're used to doing solo development. In essence, the co-reviewer is us, right? You know, we're just iteratively debugging and, and updating appropriately. But this this has so many great, you know, chapters or sections in here to talk about the practicalities of this. I, I was even just, as you were talking, um, looking at the section called handling pushback. This can happen sometimes, whether it's an open source or even just in your organization. Maybe the author wants a, a, you know, a little bit of a fix here and there in that PR. There are de delicate ways of handling that, but it has some very great um, narrative here about you know, what are the biggest priorities. If it's fixing that, that bug or adding that new feature, do you have to have it exactly the way you outlined it from a style standpoint? Maybe you could make a couple modifications to appease the overall style of that code base and making sure that you're transparent and honest of each other to resolve potential conflicts. So we've seen this happen. I mean, like I said, every project has its own unique life, but there can be opinions. But I think this is a great resource for, for teams to have to whether they want to use this verbatim or if they want to use this as inspiration for their own code review procedures, I can see this as being a great input to that. I'm even in a situation at, at the day job where we're trying to revise 
procedures on developing what we call capabilities, i.e. packages, shiny apps, or other reusable code. And talking about the practical best practices is just as important as the actual tools themselves. That doesn't get enough press. I want to give a shout out to all of you out there that have taken it into your own hands to make the practical aspects of code development front and center at your orgs. I know it's tough. I've been there. I'm still in it. So having resources like this goes a long way to making that journey a bit more smooth for all of us. And what's else smooth? What can make your journey in R more smooth? Well, of course, checking out this week's issue and all the back catalog as well. Everything is available at rweekly.org. You'll see this issue linked directly on the front page, but also all the previous issues as well. So you can see if you're just catching up, kind of what you missed or what you want to refresh your memory on. In fact, Mike and I in the pre-show, we were doing our usual banter, and I mentioned that I'm planning an upcoming vacation that will be a road trip. I'm going to go back to one of our uh, additional finds from a week or so ago from Andrew Heiss about his use of R to plan maps. So there's lots of cool stuff in the back catalog. So definitely check that piece out. And we love hearing from you as well. The project itself, our, our weekly, is brought to you by the community and for the community and is powered by you in the community. So if you have a resource you want to share with us, send us a pull request on the upcoming issue draft. We'll be glad to get that into the issue. Um, our curator of the week will check that out when it's their time to push the magic buttons, if you will, to get the new issue up and running. You can also send us feedback on this show itself. We love talking about R, of course. That's why we do it. But we love hearing from you. You can use the contact page. A link is embedded in this episode's show notes right there for you to click on. You can also, if you're using one of these awesome new podcasting 2.0 apps out there like Podverse or Fountain or Castomatic, you can send us a boost along the way where you can do that directly in your podcast player. We get a little fun message, a little bit of fun along the show itself. And you can also get in touch with us on social media. I am sporadically on Twitter with at the RCast, but I'm more frequently on Mastodon at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can the listeners get a hold of you? Likewise, uh, on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff, and I'll put the little teaser out once again. I did have a fun uh, stream last week as part of the Art Medicine Conference. I will be putting the recording of that up this week. If you miss it, I'll put that on the Shiny Dev Series YouTube channel. And like I said, I've got the itch to keep going with that project and really put in the BS Lib features for the paces in a fun, interactive way where I'm sure I'll fumble stuff along the way. But if you've watched any of my live streams in the past, it's about problem solving, a lot of debugging, but we learn a lot along the way. So keep be on the lookout for that in the coming weeks as well. But that's going to close up shop here for episode 126 of our weekly highlights. We're very happy that you joined us, and we hope to see you right back here for another episode next week.